Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Dr. Gerald Roach, Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy, and a Latrobe Asia Fellow at Latrobe University. The United Nations has declared 2022 as the start of the International Decade of Indigenous Languages. And to mark this occasion, we'll be taking three episodes of Asia Rising to examine issues relating to the politics of Indigenous languages in Asia. Joining me in this episode is Gegen Dulbayud, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Uppsala University's Hugo Valentin Center in Sweden. Thank you for joining me, Gegen Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to to talk at this podcast. I mean, I'm quite honored. Gergantul, okay, I have lots of questions for you, but just for the purpose of the people listening along at the podcast, could you introduce yourself, where yeah. you're from, uh, what languages are spoken in that part of the world and so on? I'm from Inner Mongolia in China and from this eastern part. And over there, um, of course, this Mandarin Chinese and Mongolian are two official languages. But uh, my mother tongue is Mongolian, and I started to learn Mandarin Chinese in 1990s at that time. I mean, we started to learn it from year three as a uh, subject, and the rest of the courses are taught through the medium of Mongolian. Of course, it has changed a lot recently. So Mongolians there, I mean, they speak two languages quite proficiently. Of course, there are many Mongolians who can't speak it anymore. And though we say that officially there are around 4 million Mongols, but a kind of rough estimate shows that actually half of them are proficient bilingual speakers. It means another 2 million actually can't speak Mongolian. And so in that area, if you have Mongolians being bilingual in Mongolian and Mandarin Chinese, other local people bilingual in Mongolian as well? So, for example, do local Han Chinese in Inner Mongolia speak Mongolian as well? Mm, that's very rare. There are, of course, a few, but they, these people... There are Han Chinese who migrated to Mongolian-dominant pastoral villages or regions, for example, in 1970s during the famine and some of the disasters in Han area. But mm. since 1980s, because of this urbanization or reform and economic development, this kind of movement, even linguistic transfer from speaking Chinese to learning Mongolian is very rare. and. Mm-hmm. And are exceptions. Okay, thanks. That's some very useful background for the rest of the conversation. Given that we are talking at the start of the United Nations decade of indigenous languages, could you tell us a little bit about how relevant is this idea of indigeneity in China and in Inner Mongolia? How relevant is being indigenous and speaking an indigenous language for people in Inner Mongolia? Mm. Yeah, about this relevancy, I would say yes and no. Yes, because 
Mongolians, they do compare themselves sometimes with indigenous peoples in Euro-American context, such as Sami people or Native Americans. For example, three months ago when I shared this news about the official apology of Swedish church to Sami people, which took place in Uppsala, and hundreds of Mongols shared this and they liked it. Of course, they can't comment much about that because of the censorship. But there are a few comments that read that when will we get this kind of apology? Another example is that sometimes these green pictures or photos of these uh, drunk and unemployed Native Americans idling away their time appear in these Mongolian media spaces and make sensations there. And they, obviously, this kind of picture or this kind of apology of Swedish church to Sami people or those kind of things touch their nerves because mm. they imagine how life may become or how life may change so mm. through these lenses. The fact that not all of them connect themselves explicitly and fully with this concept of indigeneity or indigenous people does not mean that they don't entertain such connections in their minds mm -hmm. or they don't imagine their world through these lenses of indigeneity. In public and official spaces, such connections are rarely made because of China's refusal to acknowledge such concept or state's refusal to use this kind of term to characterize their peoples. And another thing about this indigeneity is there is a famous Mongolian scholar, because he only writes in Mongolian, not many people know about him. And he employed this term, concept of indigeneity, in his many, many books. His name is Sen Chokhte, Wa Sen Chokhte. For example, in his writings on animism mm -hmm. and uh, symbolism or mm -hmm. location picking and landscape observation, he used this term, indigenous culture, in Mongolian Ogulsayal. Okay, we can say, based on what you've just told me, that people in Inner Mongolia feel some affinity with indigenous yeah. people elsewhere. There's a, some limited use of this term and framework of indigeneity. And when it comes specifically to language, does this framework of indigeneity have any influence there? So, for example, 2019 was the United Nations International Year of Indigenous Languages. Were there any events there to celebrate Mongolian language? Were there any activities organized to do with indigenous languages then? Uh, no, uh, there is no activities actually connected with these international movements. Yeah, yeah. I think this kind of public way of holding those activities are also quite limited there. And so now I'd just like to go back to a point that you very briefly made in the introduction, where you mentioned that when you grew up, you had this bilingual education, but things have um, changed in recent years. That the education that you received growing up is perhaps no longer available to. Mongolian people in Inner Mongolia today. Could you just briefly outline some of the changes that have taken place in terms of language and education since you were a student at school? Until 2020, in Mongolian medium schools, except the language courses like Chinese, 
all the other subjects are taught through the medium of Mongolian and in 2020 because of the bilingual education reform, Chinese and politics and history, these three main subjects are now being taught through Mandarin Chinese, not Mongolian anymore. This is the change. Of course, Mongolian is still there in schools, but at the moment, of course, we can't speculate or predict what kind of changes will take place in the next few years. But what I heard is that from 24 in my hometown, chemistry and geography will be taught through the medium of Chinese too. So this medium of instruction is, is the change in recent few years. This certainly reinforced this kind of existing linguistic anxiety because it has been looming over Mongols for decades, especially from 1980s and urbanization and reform. But 2020 is a really marked a significant change in mm-hmm. sentiments as well as in many practical aspects mm. of language use. Right. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next. So I might just ask you to elaborate a little bit on this topic of really people's feelings about these changes, the way that they're emotionally reacting, and particularly the way that they're expressing those emotions through social media. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and what you've observed. Yeah, I'll uh, just share with you this short video I watched of you just last week, actually. This clip is made by an emerging Mongolian performance team. They sometimes make a short film and sometimes comedy. In this clip, and I think they are obviously inspired this troop of time travelers. So a young Mongolian man was dispatched from the year 3220 to learn Mongolian language to today's world. Of course, people living in 3,220 year this year appeared in a dead, silent world, except this humming voice made by the time machine. Mm. There is hardly any any, any noise or voice, Mm. and they are not just languageless, so it even appears that they are voiceless people. Anyway, this young man landed naked on grassland. A Mongolian family found him and for a long time, and he remained silent until he learned to utter some words or vocabularies after he lived with this family. Mm-hmm. And one day, suddenly he collapsed when they were having tea together outside. Maybe some of the chips implanted in him triggered that, who knows, anyway. And uh, just before he fainted, he said this, I'll translate this, and um, I came from the future. There's no Mongolian language. It is extinct. You are carrying on my language and you should cherish it and love this mother tongue. And then he lost consciousness again. It is very popular and it was mm. it attracted hundreds, hundreds of weavers. This dark future <laughs> upon this mm. current present frame. It's really quite a profound expression of people's current anxieties about the language and the fate that they see for the language and the future that they imagine for the Mongolian, it's a very interesting piece of work, and it's also interesting to hear how people are reacting to that. I also wonder, what are some of the signs that people see in the present that 
give them cause for concern about the language in the future. So, for example, I know that there's the changes in the education system, but from reading some of your other work, it sounds like people are also quite concerned about the way that the Mongolian language itself is changing, the way that it is currently spoken. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those anxieties, about purism and wooden Mongolian and so on. Yeah, and, and one of the things, there are official Mongolian media which are state-funded, like Inner Mongolia Daily or Inner Mongolian TV, those Mongolian language medias. The news are directly translated from Chinese news. And it's a kind of propaganda. Translations are often picked up by Mongolian language speakers. It requires a person to know Chinese in order to understand Mongolian news, even though we are reading Mongolian or looking at these scripts, but it's not our language anymore because some of the translations are just so awkward or mm. it's just directly kept from Chinese. So they're taking a Chinese phrase and just doing the direct translation into Mongolian. Yeah, yep. for example, is tested negative in COVID test or tested positive. Negative and positive, in Mongolian, we have a kind of bit a way to express this. Mm. How this news say about this is directly from Chinese. What about the issue of purism in language? Beyond that issue of the direct calcs, or the direct translations from Chinese into Mongolian, what are some of the concerns that people in Inner Mongolia have about the use of Chinese in Mongolian language, the issue of language mixing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, they look at this mixed everyday expression as a kind of degenerated language or degenerated Mongolian and as a sign of this language shift. Obviously, I mean, from linguistic point of view, mixed language doesn't mean it's not directly related to language loss or, or it's not directly related to that I mean, in, in everyday context, of, of course, in informal conversation. But they look at this every sign of this Chinese influence as an outward sign of this dominance of Chinese language in Mongolian spheres. Because it is visible and it can be easily politicized. So this mixed way of speaking is attacked to resist this uh, dominance of Mandarin Chinese language. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit more about how is that attacked? How are people responding to language mixing? How are they responding to the use of loan words, for example, on social media? In my recent work, I classified these kind of strategies or reaction into two different categories. The first is this imaginally associate this mixed language as a sign of loss in the last seven decades since 1947 when the autonomous region was established. So it is regarded as a sign of language loss, loss of land and loss of rights. So mixed language is associated with all these losses experienced by Mongols in the last several decades. And they speak to this power imbalance as well as this loss of autonomy through the mixed language, through resisting this mixed language. One of the ways to represent this everyday mixed speech in writing, in print forms, 
So because Mongolian script and Chinese scripts are so different, and especially the classical vertical Mongolian script, which is kept in Inner Mongolia, because it is written in vertical form, it is originally derived from uh, Syriac script. So the useless script or this transcription of everyday mixed speech as a strategy to to stigmatize or to attack this mixed speech. And this is really related to Mongolian script too, because this traditional uh, vertical script is kept in Inner Mongolia while it is given up or replaced by Cyrillic in the state of Mongolia. So mm. it's a politically charged or hyper-ideologized medium. Yeah. Mm. And in response to that situation where people are presenting language mixture and loanwords as a threat beyond producing stigma, are there community initiatives to address that, for example, by producing new terms in Mongolian, campaigns to encourage people to use those words and those kind of things? Most of them are grassroots efforts, and mm-hmm. these are translation of new terms like related to home office and all this coronavirus and all those new terms are translated by young Mongolian. They are translating these new terms in online spaces. And I wonder in that kind of work, how important or how visible is the concept of of rights, in, like including language rights. So I know, for example, in the Tibetan context that although the capacity to talk about human rights and language rights in China is, is constrained, people informally do that socially on social media. It is, at least in the past, it was a growing part of discourses about language. So do people talk about language rights as part of this or is that not part of the conversation? I would say language rights are talked about before 2020. Since the 2020s reform and the crackdown, all those voices somehow disappeared, I would say, and as far as I know. And before 2020, for example, how one of the salient ways to, to express how they were engaging in this is they are all bilingual signs on the streets of Inner Mongolia and my bilingual public signs are mandated by the state law. And often those translations of shop names by, into Mongolian are either wrong or bizarre or hilarious. And then there were a high school teacher, a Mongolian teacher with his students. They do those kind of weekly check and they ask the shop owner to correct it because they offer the correct version. And then they would say, this is how it is written in the language act of the Inner Mongolian region, or how this is stipulated in the law. They have to be of similar size. The Mongolian has to be in the front of the Chinese characters. So they are doing those kind of correction. And then they present those shop owners with this law, these papers, documents. Mm -hmm. So it was present before. As we are now coming towards the end of the interview, I'd like to bring the topic back to United Nations decade of indigenous languages and ask if you think that there are any issues in the way that the framework has been set up that could be addressed as we work our way through those 10 years. 
Yeah, I wanted just to say that we might say that this coming decades is it's just about indigenous people who are officially recognized as the individuals, but it seems people might think that it is actually not related to others who are not that prominent in this discourse. All these activities you do in these different spaces by those who can voice their intentions or voice themselves are important and they are being paid attention to by others, even though they are not participating in these discourses or not able to participate, I would say. So I think you should keep up the good work. They do pay attention to this. Okay, and just to ask one final question in relation to the United Nations Decade of Indigenous Languages. Given that we have 10 years ahead of us to focus on these issues facing Indigenous languages everywhere, what do you think Mongolian people in Inner Mongolia would like to see happen in those 10 years in regards to their language? And if you have any of your own personal hopes or wishes that you'd like to share, that would also be fantastic to hear. I mean, of course, the most supportive way to implement or to promote this is the policy change, of course, but we can't rely on that. So on a more practical grounds, I mean, I would say more books and audiovisual materials should be converted into traditional scripts and imported to Inner Mongolia, from Mongolia at least. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, needs a lot of funding, not just for children. I mean, those popular novels, those more new novels. Book translation is one of the things we should still continue to do mm-hmm. and be possible to do in some ways. And of course, children's book projects, I mean, this is something, a kind of universal thing. It's not just required in our communities. It should be done in many, many places. And so this kind of children's book projects, I hope in some way there will be more collaborations, including researchers and book translators as well as readers. Thank you so much for talking to us, Gegentul. It was fascinating and very insightful, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all accessible podcasting platforms. You can also follow us on Twitter. Gegentul is at Gegentul, G-E-G-E-N, T-U-U-L I am at G. Joseph Roach and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia I also encourage you to take a look at Gegentul's most recent article titled Linguistic Purism as Resistance to Colonization published in the Journal of Sociolinguistics I'm Gerald Roach and thank you for listening <laughs>